In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Hey, good evening and welcome. I'm filling in for Derek tonight. My name is Emily Waters. And so we have these three readings tonight on uh, meditation generally that cover uh, a lot of uh, information that will be repeated. So we'll see what happens in subsequent classes, but there's going to be some repetition, but we'll see. A certain amount is good, but some is overkill. Anyway, I thought I would start out with the, the one from the book called Minding Closely the four applications of mindfulness. I just run through that. And I'm going to like skip and uh, skip around in these readings. And I, I thought it might actually be helpful to look at it on screen. And then you could just look on screen and, and I wouldn't have to show you, tell you where I am in the text and for you to struggle to find it. I could point it out. How's that sound? Uh, it's sad because I like to see like people and your reactions, so it's a, sort of a toss-up. But you don't have a sidebar with the faces. Well, I guess you don't get all of them, though. Yeah. Do you guys see my sidebar with faces? I do. Oh, I see. I see oh, that's four yours, people. Not mine. I can't control it. Or no, that is mine. I can't tell. Anyway, I see four people only. There, I can see more. Yes. Anyway. Um, How's that? So, he makes this interesting statement at the beginning. The theory, teachings on the theory and practice of mindfulness belong to the class of methods for cultivating insight. Now that would not necessarily be, be something that I would have said or come up with because um, in my training, mindfulness is the key attribute for achieving shamatha. And um, he's, in some sense, uh, this may be like a personal slant of his because he knows the purpose of uh, mindfulness or shamatha is to achieve vipassana. But also in the famous book by Vasubandhu called The Treasury of Abhidharma, he defines mindfulness as that which leads to prajna. 
And so there's immediately this connection between mindfulness and wisdom. And the missing link unstated in that equation is Vipassana. Mindfulness is the foundation for all other kinds of meditation practice. I think that's generally universally accepted. So mindfulness is the king, as they say, of all mental faculties when it comes to cultivating the human being in general. Uh, let's see. These practices do not require any religious beliefs. There's all sorts of practices that don't require any like frame of reference, any view. But they can be accessed by anybody within any tradition. And that's why meditation has become so universally popular, is that it does support whatever one's ulterior agenda is. Just uh, the development of a strong, stable, perceptive mind is universally useful. Supporting techniques include uh, values of the heart, loving kindness, compassion, and empathy, and practices develop to develop insight into the actual nature of phenomena incorporate more theory, but you need not swear allegiance to the theory prior to utilizing the practices, which is really important distinction, is uh, that um, to come to the conclusion about the way things are before looking for them for yourself is totally missing the boat because then they don't have the impact that you're looking for, which is the transformation which he gets to subsequently. Yeah, he interestingly lists his teachers, Dalai Lama, Genlam Rinpa, Geshe Nawang Dargye, Geshe Rapten four Galukpa teachers, and then Gyalcho Rinpoche, a Nyingma teacher, who he studied with last and continues to consider as his teacher. Now he left out, he also had a, a, a Theravan, a Sri Lankan teacher for a number of years, who he, he studied with when he lived in Sri Lanka for a few years early on in his career, and uh, became a formative part of his his uh, path, his practice, and his understanding, and his presentation, where he studied the traditional Theravadan systems, and we see that coming through in some of the readings tonight, and we'll see that in other places. And I, his, his teacher had a very odd name, and I, I can't like remember it off the top of my head, but we'll come to it. He'll mention him. He, uh, he lists this, has this interesting idea that there's a, a matrix of skillful means in the progression of development of a human being in the Buddhist tradition. Mindfulness practices do not exist in isolation, but are within a matrix of diverse techniques with various purposes and prerequisites. And he lists five different varieties of techniques in the Buddhist tradition. Refining the attention, i.e. shamatha, achieving insight through mindfulness. Vipassana, cultivating a good heart. Compassion, loving kindness, and so forth. And exploring the nature of reality understanding the view, and realizing the great perfection 
you see his last teacher had a profound insight uh, impact on his path the first of these is uh, historically as well as in practice interestingly enough is what he calls translates as meditative quiescence or shamatha developed by training and refining the attention the further goal of this is to achieve a state of highly focused and refined attention which becomes an accurate instrument for investigating the nature of reality And uh, India was uh, particularly ad advanced in the, the you know, cultivation and mastery of this skill, interestingly enough, that like this one area of the world just like became intently focused on this type of uh, cultivation. It's, it's really interesting. Cool. Anyway, uh, Vipassana, achieving insight through mindfulness. And... Uh, Historically, the Buddha himself started with the development of samadhi, but then he moved on. And so when Alan here says samadhi, he's referring to the samadhi of shamatha. The term samadhi is used differently by many different teachers in different contexts. Uh, some teachers say there's a samadhi of shamatha, some say there's a samadhi of vipassana. And then in Mahayana Sutras, there's many other different types of samadhi that are named. Some teachers or, or sources define samadhi as a highly refined state of meditative um, experience or state of being, and don't really specify whether it's of the shamatha or vipassana type. For him, it seems to be a type of shamatha practice. Um, he describes the, the Buddha's path, where he learned all of these techniques for for uh, uh, very deep samadhi. But um, he says he stands out because he refused to take samadhi itself as the goal. His, uh, famously, the Buddha achieved all these very high levels of samadhi or transmitted absorption meditation, but realized that they were not liberation from suffering. They were just very refined states of samsara that ultimately would deteriorate. And because of that, they, ha they had an inherent instability in them because one knew that they were karmically created and therefore would, would dissolve at some point because anything that's created at some point comes apart because all things are impermanent, even very highly refined states of being or consciousness. So the Buddha's... Um, great innovation was the unification of shamatha and vipassana. Uh, I skipped a little section here where it says, um, well, he doesn't say it here, but he says it in other places that basically the type of uh, investigation that's pursued in vipassana practice does not necessarily uh, require a foundation of shamatha. And, you know, we see uh, scholars, philosophers, normal human beings like us all throughout the world pursuing a, a Vipassana-type investigation of the nature of reality and our existence without shamatha. So the specialty of the Buddha was to combine shamatha and Vipassana. That when we do the in investigation into the nature of reality and ourselves on the basis of the very 
powerful state of shamatha. It has a dramatically transformative effect as opposed to leading to just further um, intellectualization and philosophication. Uh, prior to this discovery, contemplative inquiry into the nature of reality had not been linked with samadhi. The Buddha asserted that the fusion of shamatha with vipassana is the key to liberation, lasting freedom. Um, and then he shifts into the uh, four immeasurables. Uh, a third category includes the practice of skillful means, which acts as a counterbalance to insight as wisdom and wisdom practices. This is, uh, he gives this nice analogy of the two hands of the Buddha, left symbolizing wisdom and the right skillful means, uh, enclosed or uh, supporting each other. And the goal is the union of wisdom and compassion. So the goal, cultivation of a, what he calls a good heart centers on what is known in Sanskrit as the four sublime abodes, his translation of the Brahma-viharas, which we would call the four immeasurables usually. Oh, I'm sorry, he calls it that right here. As we know, they're loving kindness, compassion. The third one has uh, is variously translated in various places as joy, sympathetic joy. Here he has empathetic joy or rejoicing and equanimity. And then he says, the Mahayana tradition expands this cultivation of a good heart with the uh, the idea of the vast intent of the spirit of awakening called bodhicitta, the altruistic motivation of a bodhisattva to bring all beings to the state of enlightenment. And included in that is the practice of uh, lojong or mind training, which includes the practice of tonglen, exchanging self and others. That's coupled with the breath. The fourth method is the um, the deeper dimension of insight from presented in the Mahayana traditions, Prajnaparamita Sutra's perfection of wisdom. And uh, this this uh, wisdom is called prajna in Sanskrit, which is uh, a specialized understanding that results from a the, uh, progressive cultivation of study, contemplation, and meditation, which is uh, very important to understand how those complement each other and lead to uh, um, a much more profound understanding and impact than each any one of them alone. He describes the, the middle way view in, uh, in a little bit here. Let's see. And this focuses on the um, teachings of Nagarjuna, begins with the, the teachings of Nagarjuna in the, in the Mahayana tradition, that is, which is focused on the understanding of emptiness or shunyata and dependent origination, pratitya, samutpada. And he, uh, he translated for Gyalcho Rinpoche at one point a text by Karmachankame called the Union of Mahamudra and Mahaati, which he translates 
in two books, one called A Spacious Path to Freedom and the second one called Naked Awareness. And it includes Geltro Rinpoche's commentary as well as the root text by this gentleman, Karma Chakme, who was a Kagyu master. And um, it represents primarily uh, the, the section on Shamatha and Vipassana that he's referring to reflects the Mahamudra lineage, which he says accords with the middle way view. And historically, um, interestingly enough, the Mahamudra lineage was based on the Prasangika Madhyamaka view and not the Zhentong view. And um, focuses on what is the relationship between mind and what appears to it, and what is the true nature of existence. And uh, complementary practices are lucid dreaming. And uh, this is a, a, a fun, fundamental practice in both the system of Mahamudra and Mahaati, and uh, Alan is particularly drawn to this, has a book dedicated to it, and uh, writes about it frequently. We saw a little presentation on it in last week's reading, and we'll see it come up again and again in the readings as we go through them. And then finally, we have the greater perfection, which he calls accomplishing Buddha nature. It's an interesting way to present that. I would not have uh, described it that way myself, but it points out a very interesting aspect of that teaching, accomplishing Buddha nature, bringing our inherent wakefulness to uh, perfection or, or uh, the forefront instead of our... Uh, focus on our weaknesses. He says this is, uh, these practices are said to represent the culmination of all lower practices, and their ultimate result is the realization of all Buddha's enlightenment. The realization of all Buddha's enlightenment. As if the other practices are not, don't have that same goal. They all have that same goal. Uh, so path of insight. Uh, he says, for this particular book is based on a retreat where he was focused on the four foundations of mindfulness. Uh, I skipped a little statement. Oh, back back up in, uh, in the section on Vipassana. He says, Mindfulness, the purpose of our expedition, is central to the blah, 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 blah. The four close applications of mindfulness constitute the foundational Vipassana practices common to all schools of Buddhism. So this is an interesting statement because the four foundations of mindfulness are considered by many teachers to be shamatha and by many teachers to be Vipassana. And there's no, as far as I can tell, there's no general consensus of it. Um, but uh, those who consider them to be shamatha certainly consider them to be the uh, foundation for the practice of Vipassana. So they are common to both traditions, but uh, in his mind, they are actually encompass in, in, uh, Vipassana, which is the traditional Mahayana version of them. In the Mahayana, they're presented as the type of Vipassana practice generally. And instead of... Um, Whereas in the in the Theravadan tradition, the 
um, at least overt presentation of the four foundations of mindfulness is to realize the four marks of existence as well of uh, impermanence, um, lack of uh, satisfaction, uh, insubstantiality, and uh, egolessness or lack of uh, a coordinating factor as well as uh, impurity of the body. Um, in the Mahayana tradition, the four foundations are used to understand the emptiness of those four realms of experience, of body, feelings, mind, and phenomena. Let's see. So, back down into the uh, path of insight section, the four close applications of mindfulness. And, and what we call the four foundations of mindfulness are translated differently by different translators. Uh, he cho chooses this four applications of mindfulness, which uh, is a little bit more of a more literal translation of the terminology, are foundational for the practice of Vipassana. Now, he even says nowhere in these teachings, so he's talking about the sutra on the four foundations or applications of mindfulness, the Satipatthana Sutta and the Maha Satipatthana Sutta. There's two suttas in the Pali Canon that present this practice, and there's a, 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 a related sutta, or a couple of suttas, called Anapati, Anapada, Anapanasati. Sutta, which presents just the practice of mindfulness of breath. And um, he says right away, nowhere in these teachings, i.e. these sutras, the four that I just mentioned, the two Satipatthanas, smaller and larger, and there's two Anapanasati sutras, does the Buddha say, now analyze the nature of a self? He just says, analyze Notice the factors of existence. Notice the, the different aspects of our physical existence, our feelings, our mind, and of phenomena. One strategy involves analysis of the four elements in terms of the body. There's also the four postures. There's also the deterioration of the body in what are called the, the nine stages of decomposition of the skeleton. Each body part is examined closely. The 32 parts of the body is one analysis. But the Buddha never says in anywhere, am I the head, heart, liver, kidney, lung, blood? He never says, am I the, the, this element or that element? He just says, this body is composed of these things. Be aware of that. And so Alan's understanding of it as of a Pashna practice makes him say, uh, add these, uh, these types of um, introspective or discriminating analytical statements. And of course, nowhere, uh, you know, we do this... Uh, direct observation of the phenomena that constitute our being, beginning with the body. Nowhere among any of them 
including the body, including the brain, can we find the I? But without directly addressing how we conceive of ourselves, we simply investigate the phenomena, habitually grasp it as I and mind to see what is actually there. So we, we look at the illusion. We, we stare at the illusion of um, projecting a sense of I upon the basis of different um, bases of designation, body, feelings, consciousness, and so forth. The culmination is that by recognizing the fact that internally and externally all the relationships among the various facets of reality are simply phenomena, one finally sees that there is no direct evidence for an autonomous self. One finds no indirect evidence or influence of an autonomous self. Everything operates quite naturally without one, without me. And this is not an intellectual conclusion, but a direct perception. So the Buddha never says, experience the absence of self. He says, look at one's experience. Investigate it. He doesn't give you the answer. He asks you to, invites you to do the analysis, the practice. At first, the goal of Vipassana is to realize the true nature of the experiential world. When we arrive at what's called the middle way view of emptiness, Vipassana becomes a deeper ontological probe. We seek to experience, realize experientially whether anything whatsoever has its own inherent nature. So he's describing the progression from the uh, understanding of the absence of a self within the various skanda factors of existence, and then the extrapolation from there into the rest of the world and understanding that the rest of the world has the same quality of being without entity that makes things what we think they are. I've heard religious study scholars who don't meditate express the view that meditation is brainwashing oneself. So uh, this Vipassana practice could be seen as brainwashing, particularly if we start with, with the uh, belief that there's no self or that everything is empty and then we try to convince ourselves of that instead of taking it the other way around, of questioning our existence. It's true that meditation can be used that way. This is why a central theme in Buddhism is the need to strike a balance between intelligence and faith with intelligence, but no faith, we would continue to question everything endlessly, never develop certainly certainty and failure, fail to accomplish anything in our meditation. On the other hand, there's a real danger of overzealous faith that suffocates intelligence. People who simply believe whatever they're told, my teacher told me this, the Buddha said this, it's got to be true. They'll discover dogma. Meditation is a very powerful hypnotic practice. So if you undertake meditation from the point of view of trying to confirm your view of the world, it will do that. You can do that very successfully. Confirm your view of the world. So 
So he emphasizes that we must first understand uh, what the self is, whether in what way we think about the self, in what way the think the self that we think about does not match our direct experience and is therefore refuted. We must see for ourselves. He has this interesting uh, way of characterizing the two aspects that are, emerge from the practice. Two different types of criteria. Epistemic, epistemic involve the application of intelligence to check for truth or falsity. We become very uh, clear in our way of analyzing experience in, in our world. Objective. Um, however, that's not the, the full uh, uh, intelligence for its own sake is not the goal. Uh, this, this, the goal is the second criteria, which is the pragmatic value of that understanding. How does it affect my life? Does it improve the quality of my mind, behavior, awareness, openness of heart? And as many people these days say endlessly, you know, does it make you a kinder person, kinder, gentler person? He says both are essential. Okay, so now let's go on to this fun little article from from uh, this book, uh, Tibetan Buddhism from the Ground Up, which is actually a wonderful presentation of the over uh, 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 presentation of the full range of what we would uh, in the Trungpa Rinpoche lineage or tradition call Hinayana and Mahayana. Very nice presentation of uh, of those two levels of understanding and experience. And uh, we have the Stabilizing the Mind chapter. Let's see if I can increase this any. I love this uh, supposing that we all had a device that that uh, announced our every thought. What a horrific idea, huh? <laughs> Imagine when you're on retreat, like if all of a sudden you were on and your mind was projected. <laughs> it's like a nightmare, huh? Whether it's yours or someone else's, actually, whoever. Total nightmare. But uh, the whole of spiritual practice can be seen as a cultivation of deeper and deeper sanity. This path of making the mind sane is a gradual one, beginning with relatively easy practices that bring about obvious and tangible benefits. And the first stage is ethical discipline, which he discussed previously. The direct manifest result of a life focused on ethical principles is a greater state of well-being for ourselves and for those around us. It's a really interesting way of emphasizing the need for cultivating a, a, a positive way of being in terms of our conduct towards ourselves and others. Um, that it, it produces a state of well-being. We're not constantly worried and uh, about what we're doing or what we've done or what we'll do, and we're not constantly being like accosted by the karmic reverberations of negative activity that we perpetuate. 
So it says, even without deep study or meditation, this brings about greater sanity and contentment. Just being a basically good human being. In uh, the Buddhist context, meditative quiescence is a quality of awareness that's stable and vivid, clearly focused on its chosen object. Stable, vivid, clear. It's a tool to be employed in the third phase, which is insight. Oh, and I skipped this quote from... Uh, uh, I believe this is from Karma Chalkme. I'm sorry I didn't include the footnotes and the readings and the source book. Major gap, but uh, tranquility is achieved by focusing the mind on an object and maintaining it in that state until finally it's channeled into one stream of attention and evenness. And then insight is attained through a general and detailed examination of reality and the systematic application of intellectual discrimination. Very different than uh, how that how we might have heard about insight or Vipassana in the tradition of Trungpa Rinpoche or even in the maybe in the Vipassana tradition as it's commonly uh, known in the United States these days so, and Asia like Goenka and Insight Meditation Society and so forth. But this um, you will all be very familiar with this at this point, having gone through the traditional uh, sources that we've gone through. These are the traditional descriptions. This is the uh, direct antidote to ignorance, the mental affliction that lies at the root of all of samsara. However, without meditative quiescence, shamatha, the power of insight is limited. And so, therefore, uh, there's these... Uh, there's this emphasis on achieving a certain amount of shamatha before engaging in uh, vipassana or before expecting one's vipassana to be effective. And we talked about this last week and we'll probably continue to talk about it and, and encounter to what degree does one have to accomplish shamatha to validly practice vipassana. And there's uh, various opinions on that. Uh, and then he, then he, uh, so he gives these two quotes sent from the Kagyu, where there's no contemplative tranquility or shamatha, there's no insight. If one seeks insight too early, one will not achieve tranquility. It will disturb your ability to achieve shamatha if you get too focused on the intellectual understanding. And he quotes the Asanga, the famous Asanga. Tranquility is to settle the mind in tranquility. It's an odd way of defining a term with itself. What is tranquility? It is to settle the mind in tranquility, regularly, attentively, intense, intensely, to clear the mind, to pacify the mind completely, and to settle the mind in one-pointedness and equipoise. What is insight? It is that which differentiates systematically and fully all things. It's nice to have the, the background of these traditional definitions, I think, because uh, the the, uh, the tendency to, to um, take the presentation of Vipassana that we get these days from various traditions on its own, 
I think leaves out the uh, the uh, profundity of these practices, the, the subtlety of these practices. Let's see the conditions for meditative quiescence. So we don't often see this, but there's this list of traditional, traditionally, uh, there's this list of six conditions that are uh, necessary for achieving medit for achieving shamatha. So um, some of these are, are uh, unrealistic for us in this modern day and age, but he tries to interpret them in a somewhat of a um, realistic fashion. And obviously there's a huge uh, range in degree that these can uh, be present or not in our lives. Six conditions are necessary. The first is a harmonious environment in which we feel secure, free from the dangers of war, pollution, disease, and animals. We have food, we have the necessities of our life, um, and ideally we, we cohabitate either with or near people who are with whom we are living harmoniously and are not antagonistic to us in general or towards our practice. You know, practicing in a, a fundamental religious household that uh, views meditation as like a, a devil practice is a difficult situation. So, um, not a helpful situation. Cultivation of meditative of shamatha requires a quiet environment, free from the noises of conversation and the barking of dogs during the night. He makes a point of this in a number of places, and many teachers, as we know, like um, make light of disturbances and say disturbances need to are good because they help us incorporate uh, uh, discursiveness into our practice. They help us deal with discursiveness and, and disturbance. He he is of the point of view that. Um, as we develop shamatha, our minds become more and more fine-tuned and um, susceptible or like um, uh, affect, uh, sensitive to loud noise in particular. And that loud noise becomes a problem. Then there's five internal conditions. First is to have few desires not constantly to be hankering after things. So he's talking about the situation of a retreat here, is, the, is how the traditional version is portrayed, that you're going into a retreat to accomplish shamatha. None of us, or most of us, do not do that these days, but you could consider your whole life in this fashion of like, you know, if I'm constantly propelled by having desires for many things, it's not going to be conducive to a meditative um, life's uh, uh, experience to my meditative experience. The third is contentment, which is sort of the uh, the result of having few desires. It sort of goes along with it. And just to be um, content with what we have and not constantly wanting to uh, make things better and uh, fuss and fidget constantly. The fourth is limiting activities. This is an interesting one. It says when we're entering a contemplative retreat for the sake of stabilizing our minds, 
God's sake, rather, it's essential to reduce other activities to a bare minimum. So, you know, that's why we're asked on retreat to limit your email activities and your work-related activities. And, and uh, then we always encounter people who are like, addicted to exercise and they have to run or go hiking every day and every free moment and those are not actually conducive to shamatha they're great things to do but it depends what your priorities are the fifth may be the most important of all pure ethical discipline um, this does not mean one is so one never engages in unwholesome behavior, but it does mean that one's familiar with the types of behavior to avoid the ten unwholesome deeds, beginning with killing other beings, and uh, one tries to maintain uh, positive ethical activity and conduct. And the sixth is the elimination of compulsive discursive thinking. <laughs> which which is really the essence of meditation practice for all of us to you know to be brutally honest is that we all are obsessed with compulsive discursive thinking so to have that to be like a condition sort of is a little bit like <laughs> the chicken or the egg you know it's like if I didn't have that then why I wouldn't need to meditate <laughs> and uh if I had to get rid of that before meditating, then how am I supposed to get rid of it? But um, the ten this tendency must be curbed if we're ever able to cultivate meditative quiescence. The point is not to stop thinking, which is impossible. Um, and also cultivation of insight clearly requires intelligent use of thought and discrimination, very different from the panoramic awareness of Chogam Chungpa Rimshe, but what needs to be stopped is conceptualization that's compulsive, mechanical, and unintelligent. So just like constantly like uh, trying to understand conceptually the practice of meditation or of retreat or of emptiness and the subtleties of, of emptiness and Buddha nature while one's on a retreat. You know, it's just not a helpful thing. Diligence is obviously the uh, all-pervading quality that's needed to put all to put uh, all of those six conditions into effect. Let's see the meditative objects for stabilizing the mind. We can choose among a wide variety of objects. We don't usually know that these days. We're given you know one object generally, but in traditional Buddhism, there's this list of by in traditional Buddhism in the earliest. Buddhist texts on meditation, there's like lists of many different objects. Sometimes the, the, there's a famous list of 40 different objects of meditation. One, one common method in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition for, for beginning meditators is the focus on the image of the Buddha. And this is a Mahayana basically practiced because the Mahayana is, is focused very much on the qualities of the Buddha as a, a source of inspiration for our cultivation of bodhicitta and our aspiration for enlightenment. And there's this notion that by um, understanding and connecting with the qualities of the Buddha, we, we wake up our pre-existing or dormant uh, Buddha nature, Buddha qualities. So this is a common practice of visualizing the Buddha. 
and he points out something interesting, very interesting about this practice. And key is the actual practice is not the visual one. That's only preparation. The point is to stabilize the mind, not the eyes. You know, so there, there sometimes there's a tendency um, to focus on like um, meditating on the Buddha as if the uh, the the external image of the Buddha is some sort of um, uh, magically transformative image. But it's the internal image that we're, we're focusing on. Um, Uh, let's see. So he gives that little tip about visualization practice. Um, let's see. We'll come back to the level of stress, which he talks about uh, quite a bit. Another method that's widely that's practiced widely, especially in Buddhist countries of the East and Southeast Asia, is focusing one's awareness on the breath. That's the most common one in, in the West as well. In, in breath awareness, the object of meditation, the breath is present without having to imagine it, which is a very handy feature. It's practiced in many different ways. The rise and fall of the abdomen, the tactile sensation from the nostrils down to the abdomen as the breath comes in and out of the full body, or just the tactile sensation of where the breath enters and leaves the body and the nostrils and the upper left, lift, lips. <laughs> upper left, the upper lip. A third method of stabilizing the mind involves directing one's awareness to the mind itself, which is the uh, later Mahayana tradition of the Mahamudra and Mahati, which he gets into and we'll get into in some detail shortly. This is the most subtle of all the techniques mentioned here and its rewards are great. <laughs> Funny way of phrasing it. Uh, let's see, first some common themes to all the methods. Two facets, mindfulness and vigilance. The next class focuses on this, so we'll have some repetition. But sort of like you can't, can't overdo the uh, presentation or, or effort to understand the subtleties and, and importance of mindfulness and vigilance and how they work together. Mindfulness is that mental factor that allows us to focus upon an object with continuity, continuous focusing on an object, not forgetting it. When mindfulness vanishes or diminishes and the mind slips away from the object, vigilance is the mental factor whose function is to check up on that quality of mindfulness and reestablish mindfulness. So vigilance supports mindfulness. Vigilance checks to see if the meditating mind is becoming agitated and scattered or dull and drowsy. And so vigilance guards against these two extremes, which are the two main obstacles to deeper meditation practice. There are many hindrances, but they boil down to these two, excitement and laxity. Excitement is a mental factor, a mental experience that draws our attention away from the intended object makes our mind flit around to various different objects, 
discursiveness. It's a derivative of desire, wanting something else. Excitement draws the mind outward. And when the mind is not agitated, the other, the opposite is slipping off to the other extreme of laxity. It doesn't distract the attention outward, but brings on a sinking sensation. So it, it, it uh, diminishes the mindfulness by drawing the mind inward. Uh, not, a, not really in a physical sense inward, but just sort of in on itself into a sinking fashion. The mind becomes absorbed in its object without clarity and drowsiness is bound to follow. And the object of meditation is submerged under the way waves of lethargy, obliviousness. Uh, let's see. The chief antidotes to these two main uh, obstacles to uh, meditation or shamatha are mindfulness and vigilance. And the results of overcoming them are stability instead of excitement and clarity instead of laxity. They both together produce mental and meditative stability and they both imply or require really an underlying ground of relaxation and serenity. Um, so um, relaxation is both sort of a prerequisite that uh, really comes out of those six prerequisites that we went through of uh, reducing desires and contentment and being in a safe, conducive environment, reducing activities and so forth, produces uh, and having pure ethical or positive ethical behavior produces a relaxed state of being, a serene state of being. When the mind is, is thereby made peaceful by relaxation and serenity, then the attention remains where we direct it for as long as we wish. Clarity, so that's stability. Clarity, the other um, outcome of the cultivation of meditative quiescence or shamatha, one is stability, the second is clarity, which is refers to the vividness of our subjective awareness rather than to the object. It's more the, the way that we're perceiving our world than it is the clarity of the breath or the object. It's just the light of our awareness is bright. And, and thereby we can detect even the subtle and most fleeting qualities of the object. So could we say that quinescence is the calm abiding aspect of wisdom? Like there's the wisdom part and there's the calm abiding part? Or is it larger than that? The, uh, the, the, uh, yeah, so we have this sort of mishmash of terms, don't we? Wisdom, uh, insight, uh, calm abiding, mindfulness, introspection. And so the implication is that mindfulness and, um, introspection are the key factors that lead to 
the experience of shamatha or, or mental quiescence, which serves as a very profoundly stable foundation for the cultivation and experience of insight, which leads to wisdom, but that the mindfulness has the aspect of wisdom in that it knows, there's a sense of knowing, of what knowing what we're doing. Which then, which is kind of like when you put it all together, it's not just wisdom, it's calm abiding wisdom. That's yes, exactly. Calm abiding wisdom. That's right. Makes it much, much stronger. Uh, which is sort of what he says right here, the meditative quiescence, the challenge is to, is to cultivate stability integrated with clarity, and together making an extraordinary useful quality of awareness. And he emphasizes the sequence in the practice, starting with the relaxed, wholesome, cheerful state of mind, and so forth, and then shamatha stability and clarity, and then we can go on to Vipassana and other things. Okay, focusing awareness on the mind. Many teachers have, have uh, discovered the same thing among Westerners, that we try really hard. Our efforts in meditation may be sporadic, but when we put our minds to it, we show true grit. <laughs> There's hope for us yet. However, this can create a lot of problems, this sort of this contradictory situation where we're tr not trying at all doesn't get you anywhere, but trying too hard is self-defeating. It, it like ties our mind into knots. Um, so meditators are advised to be satisfied with a vague object in terms of like having trouble f with, a, with a visual, uh, meditating on a visual image not like struggling and straining to get the image really clear, but um, satisfied with the vague object. It's best not to try harder to improve the quality of the image. Simply see if we can hold on to it without losing it, which means first cultivate the stability of holding the object. Those of you that do visualization practice, See if you can see if you can hold the visualization continuously, and then clarify it. Then make it clear, more detailed. Same thing happens with uh, those practicing awareness of the breath. We bear down on the object, trying very hard to see it clearly and to hold on to it for dear life. And we've all been taught this. If you want to get ahead, do your best and try your hardest. These, and he has this interesting way of parsing these two things as being different. Doing your best is not necessarily trying our hardest, but trying our smartest. These are not synonymous. If we try our hardest, we are trying too hard. If we try too hard, we burn out on our practice. We'll be sporadic at best until it fizzles out. So doing our best means to be skillful, as, as skillful as we can at finding the delicate balance between relaxation and exertion. And especially helpful too for this is meditation on the mind itself. To engage in meditation on the mind, one first finds a suitable posture, the usual 
uh, presentation of posture. And he gives a simple presentation on this. And he also suggests that we cultivate a certain mindset when we begin the practice. We take refuge, cultivate a good motivation. And it's finally, so it's helpful to be cheerful. <laughs> Not necessarily things that we all do when we meditate, cherishing this wonderful opportunity, like appreciating the precious human birth or our, our opportunity to practice, as opposed to looking at practice as like a chore. Um, or an exercise. We got to do our exercises. We got to do our meditation every day. And to do the practice of awareness of the mind, it's helpful to start with a tangible object, one of the others, either the image of the Buddha or even something like a, a flower, a pebble, a stick, or a candle, or the breath. And we cultivate a general awareness. And from there, then we shift. So once we have a stable experience of, of a tangible object, we can then uh, experiment with moving into the awareness of the mind or meditation on the mind. And he uh, quotes the instructions from Talopa, the uh, progenitor of the Kagyu lineage in his famous text called the Ganges Mahamudra. He says, don't indulge in thought, but watch the natural awareness. Our natural awareness has no shape or color or location. So how can we focus on it? What does it mean to watch it? And uh, the practice is to, to meditate on something that we can't identify conceptually or perceptually. And this was indicated uh, earlier on by the Buddha in a sutra called the Diamond Sutra. And he describes it in the following way. He says, a bodhisattva that wants to practice the Prajnaparamita should bring to mind, should, should cultivate a state of mind that does not dwell anywhere, does not depend on anything. He doesn't say one should cultivate an empty state of mind. He doesn't say one should go blank. He says you cultivate a state of mind, meaning a, a presence of mind, but a mind that has no reference point. It's not a very easy thing to do that. First of all, our task is to focus our attention on the mind as opposed to the physical sense fields, like a visualized object or the breath. One way to do this is to focus our awareness initially on a mental event such as a thought. It could be a thought of anything, a word, a phrase, <clears throat> but it's helpful if it's one that doesn't strum up, you know, a lot of uh, other discursiveness. <clears throat> he suggests a provocative one. What is the mind? And here we don't, but, but he's only using this as a sort of a straw man, as they say, in that <clears throat> we're not actually asking ourselves to understand to try to figure out what the mind is, but we're actually just projecting a thought so that we can experience what is a thought and how do we think thoughts and how do we experience thinking thoughts regardless of their content. The point here is not to speculate on the question or try to answer, rather use the thought itself as the object of awareness. Now when we say use the thought itself, we don't mean the referent 
you know, what is the mind? Mind refers to something, but we're not meditating on the thing. We're meditating on the question that comes to our mind called a thought, in this case, of what is a zebra? What is the mind? It doesn't matter what it is. It's just like putting a thought into the space of your mind, your mind's eye, and looking at that. Very shortly after having brought that phrase to mind and us looking at it, it's bound to fade out of our consciousness, as all thoughts do. Even those ones that we try to keep active. At that point, we keep our awareness right where it is. So normally, as, a, as one thought fades, we go to the next thought. We follow the next thought. And instead of doing that in this practice, we look at the space where the thought was. We keep our awareness right where it is. When we, had, when we were looking at the thought, our awareness was in a, in a certain place, so to speak. And after that thought dissolves, we keep the awareness right there again. We have now directed our attention onto the mind. All that's there to experience is the space of the mind. And what remains between the vanishing of one thought and the arising of another is simply awareness, empty and without obstruction like space. It's a very uh, helpful way of describing this practice, I thought, and it gives this wonderful analogy. You're uh, lying on the ground. You don't have to be a child, but <laughs> he says as a child, in other words, having a sort of like unsophisticated, uncomplicated approach to experience, let's say, gazing up into the clear sky and you're blowing bubbles into the sky and you're watching the bubbles as they rise up into the sky. And then as a bubble bursts, you keep your your vision, your mind, your, your attention right where the bubble bursts. Maybe it's one foot from your face. Maybe it's 20 feet from your face. Maybe it's 10 feet. But you look right at where it was when it burst, and it's no longer there. So you're looking in space. While, while you're looking at the bubble, it pops, and you keep your attention right where the bubble had been. Your awareness now lies in empty space. So in meditation, one focuses initially on the bubble of a thought, and then when it vanishes, we don't replace it. Rather, we stabilize our attention and natural awareness uncontrived without conceptual elaboration. So he just gives like the essence of, of meditation on the, on the natural state of the mind in a very helpful way, I thought. This practice is so subtle, we may find we become tense in our effort to do it right away. I'm sorry, someone was chiming in? Yeah, I was just going to say, that's kind of what the experience I had when you said meditate on everything is mine. And it just yeah. turned into like infinite, like everything's mine and mind is just infinite and empty. So. Well, it, it depends. There, there, It depends how you experience that. You could have created a mental projection of, of like everything being a mental projection and that's what you're concentrating on as opposed to when you're looking into the um, sort of place where a thought was and it is no longer, then 
there's an absence of mental projection. So those yeah, could be two different things. Right. Everything is mine. And so every time thought came in, I was like, well, that's just mine. That's just, I, it just kept like eliminating it. Well, but you don't want to eliminate it. You want well, to experience. I wasn't like a focus eliminate it. It was more like an experience. It's hard to describe, but okay. I just wasn't getting hung up because I was like, yeah, it's just mine. <laughs> Certainly don't get hung up. Definitely. Uh, let's see. It's uh, crucial we engage in the meditation with a sense of physical and mental relaxation. Otherwise, we get all tense about, like, you know, what happened to my object? I don't have an object anymore. Where am I supposed to look? What's going on? You know, not having a place to rest your mind is an unsettling experience, a sense of groundlessness. Starting from relaxation, one cultivates meditative stability, resting in natural awareness without being carried away by thoughts or emotions. It's not a trance state, uh, but uh, one of vivid, clear awareness. So finally, we cultivate three qualities in meditation. Relaxation, stability, and clarity. And uh, often in the earlier traditions, those three are stability, clarity, and strength. And uh, it's interesting that in the his the influence of his Dzogchen training has led him to interpret the strength as relaxation. Um, relaxation is uh, the ultimate strength because there's no obstruction. There's no sense of of anything to be obstructed or to obstruct. And let's see, another useful criterion is one's state of mind following meditation. You know, so has, uh, at the end of the session, is your mind like exhausted from mental activity, which happens sometimes when we're at a retreat, you know, and the gong rings, and it's like, phew. That's such a relief because we've been so caught up in, in thought. But if, uh, if you're actually doing the practice from a point of a place of relaxation, stability, and clarity, then it refreshes the mind, makes the mind stable and clear. So there's this other um, recommendation of keeping sessions short initially until one has stability and clarity and relaxation. Um which he describes here. Short, we have short periods, little glimpses of ability to abide in natural state of awareness without grasping. We may find this delightfully exhilarating. Our mind leaps upon the experience with glee. And as soon as we do that, the experience fades, which can be very frustrating. So basically, whatever meditative experiences we have, whatever wonderful or terrible things we experience in meditation, Dismiss them as soon as you can. The sooner the better. The remedy is to enter into a state of awareness repeatedly. Just keep coming back into awareness no matter what happens. As we become familiar with it, it will grow. Learn to let it be. That's the natural state of mind. And we obstruct it with all of our thoughts and efforts and so forth. So basically we're learning how to allow the natural state of mind to emerge.
it's, it goes through the different stages that one might encounter. Um, if we find that our minds have become agitated, the antidote is to relax more deeply. Instead of clamping down on our minds, we relax more deeply. We notice the agitation with vigilance, what he translates as vigilance or introspection, and we relax, letting the mind recompose itself or letting or letting us recompose our mind relax away from the effort that is going into sustaining relax away the effort that is going into trying to sustain our state of mind whatever that might be conceptual emotional turbulence it's it's uh let's see it's best not to silence the mind with a crushing blow of our will bring it back, you know, sort of uh, strangle our minds. Instead, release the effort of grasping onto mental events. We're so interested in like what's going on and what I have to do later and what I have to not forget. That's the, that's what keeps the, the mind thinking. And instead of uh, coming down hard on our, uh, our uh, predilection for, on those thoughts, Realize that it's the the attachment to um, occupation, mental occupation, that keeps them coming. It's the grasping, grasping onto the uh, changing and entertaining quality of mental activity. The antidote is simply to let go of the attachment. Lopez speaks of three phases, the, the initial stage, and he's referring again to this text by Talopa called the Ganges Mahamudra, which is uh, presented at the end of the book Myth of Freedom by Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, as well as in many other books. And first we have an onslaught of compulsive ideation, like a stream rushing down a, a narrow gorge. Our mind is out of control, and it seems that meditation makes things worse, makes our mind more out of control. But just stay with it. Uh, finally, the, the stream of mental activity will become like a broad flowing river, and in the third phase, the awareness is like the river flowing into the sea. <clears throat> we notice, and uh, one recognizes the mind's natural serenity, vividness, transparency, and, and freshness. patience and uh, perseverance. Eventually we no longer become distracted or agitated and at this point the emphasis on the practice should be on cultivating clarity. When we achieve some sense of stability of being present with ourselves, whether it's on the object or just the sense of being in our body, being here, in a room meditating, then we have some little semblance of stability and then we work on clarity, cultivating clarity. And finally, let's see, um, in Buddhist practice, the chief purpose of meditative quiescence is to investigate the nature of reality. And it's a temporary experience, a temporary achievement, 
meditative quiescence that can easily be lost. So I, I think we've all experienced this. We go and retreat and we develop some sense of stability and then we come back into our busy lives and two weeks later we're like, oh, where is that meditative experience I had? Okay, so let's segue into the last reading for the last section of our class tonight. Where he uses all these interesting terms. A vision-induced, sustained attention. What a what an odd phrase, way of describing the practice. But I'm going to skip to. He goes through the Theravadan practice uh, involved in uh, absorption and cultivating the, the uh, meditative experience of absorption practice, which is very cool. Very neat, this whole thing of these signs that appear, these three different stages of the signs and so forth. And my advice is don't become obsessed with this and don't like uh, run after this type of meditation practice unless you really want this to be your path. And it's a very different path, but one can easily get like totally wowed by this. Uh, these descriptions and the the cool nature of these um, experiences and waste a lot of time. So I am going to switch to oh Ed. Yeah, um, I think I brought this up about the the, the John of uh, early maybe the first class. Is it uh, is it the same thing as Diana D H? It is. Yeah, Diana is Sanskrit. Yeah. And jhana is uh, Pali. So the question that I have is, Alan talks about it a little bit in some of his classes, some of his podcasts. And I don't, I never got, like, you know, most of the time he talks about what the, the nine steps of going you know, through the shamatha process, right? Um and then I remember him saying at some point, at this point, you can work on the jhanas. And I didn't understand that the jhanas proceed along with these steps of, you know, going towards the, the, uh, the substrate. Um, do they come after the sub? Are they between the substrate and, and Rigpa? Um, are they a different style altogether? Uh, you know, different, different feel, different essence of experience. It seems to me because you just said it here. Don't get too, um, you know, focused or or uh, turned on by these these uh, these states because they are most, from what I can understand, mostly about absorption. Um, these are the the absorption states are ways of um, ways of deepening the substrate consciousness, ways of um, 
exercising the substrate consciousness and experiencing different levels of um, um, projection that the substrate consciousness creates. The world that we live in here today is a projection of our substrate consciousness mm -hmm. and it's governed by our karmic predisposition for desire. We live in the realm of desire, so we have all sorts of sense perceptions and uh, as well as form and, and sense consciousnesses and so forth. And so the dhyana states take us into the realm first of pure form, uh, where only subtle types of form exist and there's no gross form such as physical bodies that um, consume food and, and uh, produce excrement and so forth. Uh, but there are forms, it's, and it's somewhat similar to the pure forms of Plato in, in the cave. Um, and then the formless realms are where there's no embodied existence at all, but there is uh, the sense, there is still an individual, the projection of, it, of an individual mind, which is created and maintained by the belief in an I. So they don't transcend the uh, experience of ego. They are, they are refinements of ego. They're heaven realms. They're God realms. And so basically at the culmination of shamatha, there's, there, we have a choice. There's a fork in the road. And as Yogi Berra says, when you come to the fork in the road, you take it. If you come to a fork in the road, take it. <laughs> and um, you can either go into jhana practice, dhyana practice, or you can go into insight practice. And in the Buddhist tradition, if you go into absorption practice, the, the goal of absorption practice is to then experience more um, deeply insight practice. They're not practices that are used as ends in themselves in the Buddhist tradition as in some other traditions. So they're a long way around to um, experiencing the progression of insight. The more common, what's become the more common system is to cultivate insight after achieving some level of shamatha instead of going into absorption. Now, if you read the, the traditional Mahayana literature carefully, you see that um, by that progression of shamatha into vipassana and the achievement of the first stage of enlightenment or the path of seeing through vipassana, after that one then does still have to go through the absorption states as a way of purifying our attachment to the realms of form and formlessness, which are are latent within us now because they're overshadowed by our fixation on the realm of desire, but they are still present in the stream of a being even after achieving the path of seeing. And so one has to then overcome the karmic uh, habitual patterns of those two realms later. So it's two different ways of progressing. Ed. So at that point, has that become the Bhumis? After the, that's correct. The path of seeing on the Mahayana version is, is the first Bhumi. Okay. Great. 
and, and there's a, a complicated system of overcoming the different um, clashes or obstacles of the different realms that are affiliated with the clashes. Uh, the um, and, and have different levels of subtlety in the form and formless realms. So then according to, to of course, according to Alan, but I'm wondering about yourself or Trungpa Rinpoche or anybody, any other teachers you have, is it necessary to complete or achieve shamatha to attain the first bhumi? Yeah, the consensus seems to be uh, no. Yeah. Uh, Alan seems to seems to be of the belief, though. However, that you do need to accomplish shamatha to achieve uh, a yeah, level of vipassana that. that would bring you to the the first bhumi or path of seeing. But he acknowledges that very few uh, individuals in Buddhism today have achieved shamatha, and he doesn't quite complete that sentence and say. Hey. And say, well, there are many teachers, such as you know, the Dalai Lama. Has he accomplished shamatha? He doesn't like say that. He, I think, he would very much assert that the Dalai Lama has achieved some level of enlightenment. And so, does that necessitate that he has accomplished shamatha, or can shamatha then be accomplished afterwards? Is the question. So, uh, the traditions of Mahamudra and Mahahati. Uh, bring one into the practice of insight before, um, you know, as they're taught throughout the world, bring one into those practices of insight before one has achieved complete shamatha. But it's a toss-up. If if you don't have some level of shamatha and the, and the uh, delineation of what some means is is very much the crux of the issue, then Vipassana is just sort of discursiveness, intellectual discursiveness. So you need some level of shamatha. And very few teachers are precise about that. But there's it's an implication that you need like at least stage three or four in order to effectively look at the nature of mind. I have a sense that when when the meditator no longer feels like they're doing meditation, that's when you're getting there. In other words, there's no I in it. The meditation just happens. It's a slippery slope, though. You can be in that state where you've, you've gone past, which, which is actually right what I wanted to bring us to, is that there's this distinction between gross and subtle or coarse and subtle excitation and dullness and so many meditators after some number of years make their way through coarse or gross excitation and dull, dullness and achieve a somewhat stable clear type of meditative state but there's still this level of subtle excitation and dullness that's present and um right but I, what, I'm, what i'm trying to talk about though is agency or, or or feeling like there's an agent that's doing it 
you're not actively feeling it because there's no overriding sense of self, but there is very much a subtle sense of self of, oh, yeah, of sure. I, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. Right. But the, the, this, you know, earlier in the presentation, there was this idea of like watching the thoughts go by and then sort of realizing they're not being authored. That was right. His presentation of the culmination. That's right. Yeah, that's that's the part I'm talking about. I'm talking about that. When you get into that, you know, when the when the thoughts are can come and go, and they're absolutely there's nothing good or bad about them anymore. Yeah, but but there's still at least my experience of what you're describing. There's still a sense that they're my thoughts. If there wasn't, I would think that would be that would be. That would be enlightened. I mean, if there's absolutely no self, I would think that would be. Uh, it's, a, it's a subtler sense of self, and that's yeah. of course that you know. I mean, Marpa was yelling. You know, he was like on the ninth booming, and he was still yelling at, at poor you know Milarepa. You know, <laughs> I mean, it, it's. I'm just talking about this certain level of shamatha where 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 it's where it's relaxed, where the that strength becomes relaxation. And that's the slipperiest place. It's like quicksand. Yeah. It's like the sand trap. You have to rouse clarity. Yeah, and 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 so the that that's where the not taking ownership really has to happen. I, that's true. It has to happen there. And so the question is, how does one achieve that? Well, I, I don't think one achieves it. I think it happens, you know, when it happens. It's like the, the, the apple just gets ripe enough that it, that it you know, that it, it, it falls off the tree. You know, it's like, or the, or the cocoon is, you know, finally burst and that there's no more caterpillar. You got a butterfly. That's a, that is the crux of a, of a really big question is, will it just happen on its own if you stay in that state long enough? Or will you just stay in that that same level and have a perpetual experience of subtle excitation and and dullness and a and a subdued but very much present sense of innate self? Sure. Well, I think the key is to not really worry about that because that's just exciting the self more. <laughs> well, but there are practices like trekcha is is a practice that gives. Um, specifics on how to trekchid was what that means cutting through. Yeah, the whole idea is to cut through, whether it's treksha or what he calls cutting through the substrate consciousness. Yeah. It's like you're, t- and what you're describing, you're touching on the qualities of the substrate consciousness of non conceptuality, ease, and clarity. But you have to, that's the natural state of samsaric mind. And one has to, which is the perpetuation of the eighth consciousness, the sense of, of being. And one has to do something different to pierce through that. Well, yeah, but the, the whole idea of doing, again, brings up, brings up the idea of an agent. Yeah. If, if so that, that's, 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 that's the, the weird dance right there. You have to, you have to um, use, it's that famous uh, 
metaphor by the Buddha where he says in order to um, burn up the kleshas, you rub your thoughts against each other like creating a fire. You rub the kindling against each other and that creates the fire and in that fire the kindling itself is burned up. But you need that that agency to burn itself up. Yeah. And if you don't exert that agency, then you just dwell there in that very enjoyable, peaceful state, but it doesn't go further. So basically, we have to figure out how to light a spiritual fire. Yeah, exactly. Under, under, under our ass. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, whether that's, you know, impermanence or precious human birth or sufferings of samsara or devotion or compassion or loving kindness or um, understanding but somehow exactly we have to like light a fire under our proverbial ass in meditation and get us to the next stage let's look into this practice which he describes for just a few minutes as the end of our class uh, let's see Well, this goes on for some time. Maybe we can start there next week. Yeah, maybe, because next week we'll have a bit of a repeat on uh, the two qualities of mindfulness and introspection. Um, so let's do a little bit of this this week. Inverting awareness. It's possible to monitor the quality of one's attention while developing sustained attention. And it's possible to attend to the previous moments of consciousness free of appearances after achieving that state. And if that, it might also be possible to develop sustained attention with consciousness itself as one's object. And uh, so we see this idea that we were focused on consciousness as the object. And what he's explaining as um, is that in the method referred to by the term maintaining the attention in non-conceptuality, the mind is withdrawn from the senses as well as all thoughts. And one lets the mind come to rest like a cloudless sky. Um, there's a part I'm, I've skipped that I wanted to go over. There was a part where he talks the, about the nature of mind is that is that our mind can only have one object at a time and that we have these very short moments of attention that a, a, a moment of attention is very short and it can only have one object and in order to produce a focused state of being of stability and clarity and um, strength we have to have a series of mind moments on the same object and that uh, he says in that case consciousness cannot take itself as its own object but what, what consciousness does in this case is that it takes its prior moment of consciousness as the object and so every moment we're recollecting the stillness of the mind of the prior moment 
And when we do that in a sustained fashion, it it feels like we have a continuum of of um, a sustained mental composure or mental quiescence. And that's what mental quiescence is, is when we have a very continuous and ra- um, experience of the rapid moments of the, the very ins- uh, prior moment of consciousness, of stillness, of still mind. As opposed to actually being able to look at awareness at the moment Oh, actually, it's it's right here on the next page. So, oh wait, we have. Oh, it's on the page before. This is Circeation. Uh, let's see. This assertion need not be interpreted as contradicting the hypothesis that consciousness cannot apprehend itself. That premise denies that a single consciousness, and this is page 6, can have itself as its own object. During the development of mental stabilization, introspection has the function of monitoring the meditator's consciousness, particularly regarding the occurrence of the mental processes of laxity and excitation. Such metacognition is a form of recollective awareness that cognizes previous moments of consciousness. Once meditative stabilization is accomplished and one's meditative object dissolves, in this absence of appearance as the continuum of one's attention may attend to previous moments of consciousness and because of the homogeneity of this mental continuum the experiential effect would be that of the mind apprehending itself can can i ask a question yeah yeah i was one you spoke earlier about sort of basic definitions for things like shalatan vipassana and i wanted to kind of confirm whether in general in his writings when he's using consciousness is he using the the sort of classic idea of consciousness being like these momentary um, subject to object right is it just that or is he also sometimes using it as a term for more generally for mind or awareness it's both it's the latter choice that you just gave of these two he's not he's not consistent unfortunately it seems to me and we'll Uh see that you know he sometimes he talks about primordial consciousness uh, and that's a little bit of a non sequitur, yeah, primordial okay. consciousness. It should okay. be primordial we, wisdom. Right. So we can't count on that consciousness having a consistent meaning here. I don't think so. I, I could be wrong, and and we should go through you know the inst, the instances where it comes up, like on this page, inverting awareness. Uh, it's possible to monitor the qualities of one quality of one's attention while developing sustained attention. And if it's possible to attend the previous moments of consciousness, free of appearances, after achieving that state, might it also be possible to develop sustained attention with consciousness as itself as its object? There it seems like he's talking about consciousness in the sort of standard terminology of Buddhism, which uh, he gave in the reading from Minding Closely, he stated as the Sautrantika school of sort of... uh, mental realism, which I didn't, I skipped that section, but uh, this is the traditional way of uh, of referring to the state of um, 
That which cognizes an object is the formal definition of consciousness. Right? Right. So he's not consistent. Okay, there was another one that I can't remember what it was now in terms of definitions, but it'll come up in the next section probably. <laughs> well, I would, I would just quickly add that I've, I've heard, heard him talk about awareness being able, uh, being aware of awareness. He, he never mentions anything about the awareness being aware of awareness two seconds ago or a tenth of a second ago. He just says aware of awareness. And he talks about how they say, you know, the mind cannot, cannot see itself or, or uh, watch itself. So is he talking about different things there when he talks about aware? Yeah, we're going to get to that. We're, we're going to get to that. And, and I think this article had a, a section on Padmasambhava on conceptually unstructured awareness at the end of this uh, third article. And there, in my understanding, he's talking about primordial awareness that is not the subject-object of mental factor or of skanda of consciousness and so it, it's not limited in that it has to have an object other than itself but it, their primordial awareness can be aware of itself and actually that's one of the qualities of primordial awareness is that it's self-reflexive which might be a, a duplication uh, reflexive it's reflexive so you're talking about primordial awareness here that's that's past that's beyond shamatha. That is. That's that's past. after applying for But he 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 refers to the I mean that's one of the first things he goes over. You know, first settle the mind in its natural state, then there's usually, you know, some following the breath at the nostrils or wherever. And then you're doing you're aware. doing you're doing a Dzogchen retreat with him. And so this I is standard did. Dzogchen practice. If you do a four measurables retreat or you know a pure shamatha retreat, he's not gonna do that. I've done other and I've listened to other and read other things where he doesn't go into that third level of unstructured awareness, which is very much the uh the avenue of Vipassana in the Dzogchen tradition. So here in this article, Conceptually Unstructured Awareness, um, one first seeks experiential insight into the nature of mind and then derives one's theories from that. That's the preamble. The application is the first task is to settle one's mind in its natural state, i.e. shamatha, based on the mind's natural state, not the breath, not an image of the Buddha, but the object is the natural state of the mind for shamatha, achieve meditative stabilization, and then vipassana, examine the nature of awareness and realize that it's unstructured. And so why don't we stop there and we'll come back to this section, the last few sections of this article next week. Uh, last one, Cynthia. Um, I just, um, I remembered the other definition that I wanted to ask, which you can give next week if you'd want, but uh, was about what he's talking about when he uses the word exist. <laughs> yes, generally, 
my understanding is that he's using it in in uh, um, the Stoutrontica version as opposed to the Madhyamaka version. So that when we when I say the Stoutrontica version of exists, mean means that it um, is a mere appearance that has no essence of its own but uh, has has a duration it's a dharma and dharmas are impermanent they're produced and um they're they're uh inherently de- degrading uh, not not morally or emotionally but <laughs> substantially degrading <laughs> They, they degrade uh, instantaneously, so there's radical impermanence, as opposed to um, exists in a in a Madhyamaka sense is sort of an impossibility, i.e., inherently existent, and presumably in those cases, it's it's clear that he's saying that things do not exist. Because okay. it came up in the Padmasambhava section, both of those things. Good. Let's look at it. Yeah. Let's do that. That's great. Any, anything else? Any last other comments or suggestions or questions? I would, I'll have to reread it, but it seems like the inverting awareness is Hegelian. So that's, you become <laughs> self-aware. That's self-awareness, but that's not enough. It's the unstructured, the existential kind of awareness, which I think, the part with Padmasambhava is talking about the yeah, the it's very experience. different. It's very different than being very than being subconscious, like walking into a room and like feeling like everybody's looking at you or making fun of you, and being subconscious in that way. I, I don't know Hegelian. Is that a, a certain type of food or well, disease? Or? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Hegel was the dialectic, and he'd go through oh, the dialectic. Oh, Hegel, all through, Hegel. All, Ultimately, he becomes self-aware. And then he says that self-awareness is God-like because God created us to become self-aware. God couldn't be aware of himself, so he created humans. I mean, that's something else. But but it seems like here, when he does the inversion, that's what he's talking. You're inverting... Your well, awareness from the outside to be yes, in, totally. Becoming self aware, exactly. Just like Anya just pointed out, Hegel is the bagel, and here we're talking about <laughs> the ba- the hole in the bagel. Right there, you go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. So let's conclude with our chanting. For anyone unfamiliar with this, by this merit may all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy ways of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Thank you very Good much. night.